0: you
1: we didn't anticipate how far that would go. It's almost like, well, this will stop. They will stop at Crimea. They never did. They would stop with Donbass. They never did. We refuse to believe that somebody would do such a thing as invade a neighboring country. But for me, I feel like my life will always be divided into the before and after. When I found out that Ukraine was at war, that was just a devastating feeling, knowing that the bombs are falling on the place where you live, that you have to hide in the shelter, that you have to fearfully life that the war is now being waged against civilians in the most indiscriminate manner that is horrifying we feel grief we feel anger we feel sadness we feel mobilized to help right we feel energized but we feel that our life is not the same as it was before and until the war is over i don't think i will feel like the true sense of joy My see
3: but we're no one's model minority.
2: This is a show about all of you for all of us. Hey, Sharon. Hey, Raman.
3: I think we need to talk about Ukraine.
2: Yeah. And I say that almost crying in tears, but yes, we absolutely do.
3: Yeah. And honestly, we can't just talk about the news. That is unavoidable. I I think we need to do what we do best on this podcast to kind of gain greater empathy and understanding by hearing other people's human experiences. So it is Wednesday, March the 2nd, around 9 p.m. Eastern. So as we record this, it's been nearly a week since Ukraine was invaded by Russia.
2: And like many of you who are listening, you've probably been paying a lot of attention to the news and thinking about all of the people that are in the Ukraine and All of our hearts and thoughts go out to everybody being affected by this conflict. Many of us, for a lot of us, it's also abstract because it feels very far away. And for others, it might feel a little bit closer. I personally have colleagues in Kiev. I work for a company where we have an office there. And so being on a Slack channel with my colleagues as this is happening is in many ways unreal. And then so seeing that from people that I'm, that I might not know personally, but that are part of the same network. And then also watching the pictures and the videos all over the internet and the news and various social media places. And meanwhile, there's this weird, this weird feeling of it being very close because it's so accessible in some ways, and yet so far away physically from many of us.
3: Yeah. I think that the trap is for us to go back to like, the not the normalcy, nothing is normal anymore, but like Things are busy. Like there's a lot of stuff in our lives here. And if there isn't a direct connection when a conflict emerges, but this one feels different sometimes. I mean, this shit is real. Ukraine is a sovereign nation of 44 million people. It has a rich, it has beautiful culture and, and people. There's more than another 10 million folks of the Ukrainian heritage living outside of the country, a diaspora. It's among one of the world's largest diaspora populations. And so personally, for the better part of the decade, one of those people has been my dear friend, Alessio Govaron, as I know her, which she has now correct me that I've been saying her last name incorrectly for all these years. How do I say it correctly, Alessia?
1: Hi, everyone. Ramon, you would say it Alessia Hovorun. And Hovorun means a person who likes to talk in Ukrainian. Okay.
3: So that means you were born to be a podcaster. I was
1: born to be part of your
3: show. (laughs) So, Alessia Hovron, who I've had the privilege of knowing professionally and personally for almost 10 years now, Alessia is Ukrainian. She's American. She's a daughter, a mother, a wife, and an all around beautiful person. Uh, So, we were texting the other night and it just kind of occurred to me that maybe we should have this chat on this podcast. So, Alessia, first, thank you for joining us with everything going on and welcome to Modern Minorities. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: So, Alessia, when you and I were talking, you mentioned having another voice on the chat, perhaps a Ukrainian American friend of yours from, as you call it, the Yuki community. Uh, Please tell us about your friend, Adriana.
1: Well, Adriana and I met when our sons were part of the Ukrainian Sunday School. And I think her story illustrates such an important part of the Ukrainian culture, which is how resilient it is and how The Ukrainian diaspora preserves the culture, the language, how much pride they show in who they are. And I thought it would be important not only to reflect on my story, somebody who is kind of a recent arrival to to the United States, but also capture the perspective of somebody who was born here, but has very strong links to Ukraine.
3: Well, Well, Adriana, welcome to Modern Minorities. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
3: So we're not reporters. This is just a podcast conversation. So I honestly, we're not going to have anything new to contribute to the news cycle. This is not breaking news. We won't solve the situation, but I, I really just feel I want to go beyond the headlines to really highlight the human side of things because your personal experience Informs so much, I think, both as Ukrainians. Alessia, I know you're Ukrainian American, but you were born there, and Adriana as a Ukrainian American, and you both have ties back to it. so
2: Alessia, we're we're all about the same age, I think, just because you've known Remn for 10 years. So we're probably about the same. We're
3: all in our late 20s, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. Times one and a half to two. (laughs) So we're all fabulous and young. And you were born in the Ukraine when at that time, it was still part of the Soviet Union. So, can you tell us a little bit about what that was like growing up in the Ukraine at that time?
1: Um, yeah, for sure. I think there are many things that I can talk about when it comes to my childhood, but I was I wanted to reflect on what it was like to grow up as a Ukrainian speaker in Ukraine. In, in the Soviet times. I spoke only Ukrainian till I was seven. And then when I went to school, we had to learn Russian. And and so I always had this sort of dual identity as a Ukrainian and Russian speaker. But what's important to know is that the Ukrainian culture in the Soviet times was portrayed as second rate, as behind the times. The Russian language and the Russian culture were always talked about as those associated with enlightenment, science, literature, progress. And the Ukrainian culture was the culture of countryside, was the culture of the peasants, so to speak, and it was hard for me to grow up having that tension, right? I felt that I was connected to my culture. I grew up in a very patriotic family. We always spoke Ukrainian, but I always felt that shadow, right? That somehow we were second-rate citizens. And I think now that I reflect on this, you know, with the distance of 30 years, it is very, very odd, right? That somebody who grows up in Ukraine and who speaks Ukrainian was seen or felt like a second-rate citizen. So so yeah, I think that's sort of my, my main reflection given what's happening right now and my childhood.
3: And uh, Alessia, where were you born in Ukraine?
1: I was born in Kiev in the capital. So that's sort of another cynicism of the situation, right? In the capital of Ukraine, Mm -hmm. there was preponderance of books, Russian movies, Russian music. And so to be Ukrainian was, and to speak Ukrainian at that time was meant to be made of steel. Like you had to you had to be strong right you had mm. you had to gather courage and and i remember when i was probably 10 11 i was begging my parents to speak russian to me when we were in public i was like i don't want to stand out i don't want to be pointed at i want to be different so but i think it also made me realize who i am and my strong identification with ukraine comes from that period and
3: I know you came over later for university. So you were still there in 1989 when the Berlin Wall fell and later in 91 when the Soviet Union dissolved its independence. I was there.
1: I was I was was there when Ukraine proclaimed its independence and I was sort of in my late teens and it was a perfect time to be a teenager. Revolution happening and so much pride and people on the streets and flags and songs. It was it was perfect. It was a perfect time to come of age and to feel like you're part of this movement and to feel like finally we we are getting our dream and we are becoming the nation that we always wanted to be. So it was amazing. 1991, 24th of August, probably one of the best days of my life.
2: That's incredible. And Adriana, what about you? You're very much like uh, so you were born and raised by immigrants with immigrant heritage. And so what's your connection to your Ukrainian heritage as you were growing up here in the U.S.?
0: Well, I, I'm, I'm happy to talk a little bit about my family's history. But first, I'll say it's interesting because Alessia and I share some experiences. For example, I didn't speak English until I was about four years old when I went to school. And mm. the reason for that was not that my parents could not speak English, but that they just chose to speak Ukrainian in, in our home. And that is when we spoke. We were cared for by our grandparents on a regular basis, and and so Ukrainian was also the language in our household, the primary language. I was also in Ukraine in 1991 in August when all of the coups happened and the changes happened. I unfortunately left before Ukraine declared its independence on August 24th, but I was there for the month of August. That was my first trip to Ukraine, actually, in my life. So, could not have been a better time than than then to <laughs> be there.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. And what was that like as a kid? I mean, I would imagine a lot of the same stories, right? That's kind of insider, outsider thing. Mom and dad speak a different language at home, different music, different food. But what was that dual identity like for you? Well, And what part of the country in the United States did you grow up in?
0: I grew up in Connecticut. Okay. So there were there was a small Ukrainian community, not not nearly the size of the ones in New York. And yeah, it was like
3: 10 families. You guys all right, dinner together. Right. We, bet, all, so. we all
0: stuck together. It, it, was, it was interesting because- outside of the home nobody knew i was ukrainian unless i told them i was ukrainian Mm, right and mm, and i did tell all of my friends and everybody with whom i grew up our household was very patriotic like alesh's household we you know grew up speaking the language all of the traditions all of the customs around holidays were perfectly maintained and we were told as children that the situation in ukraine was such that people in ukraine really weren't able in many cases To go to church, for example, because of political and religious repression Mm -hmm. that people in Ukraine couldn't speak Ukrainian in many parts of the country because of language repression and we, we had a really very strong sense of sort of carrying the torch for the people overseas who were not able to, to do so. And that sense of patriotism was instilled in us really from birth. We knew words like communism when we were kids. Most American kids don't know what communism is you know, until they get to high school or, or college. But probably at a very young age, we heard these words as just day-to-day conversation in our household. We heard about media not being free in Ukraine. We heard about newspapers not being able to publish what they wanted. And, and so I grew up with a really y- unique perspective on, on world events, even as did many other diaspora Ukrainians and diaspora Latvians and diaspora Lithuanians and others who came from whose families came from that part of the world.
3: I would also imagine it's kind of like in this country, being America, we take a lot for granted for what we have. My parents made it very clear how lucky we were to have food on the table and things like that, right? Because of the economic situation back where they were from, or my uncles and aunties. Was there that kind of awareness of what we have? Because you were talking about like- Oh, definitely, speech,
0: yeah. definitely. My my family's history is such that my grandparents were actually the generation that was born in Ukraine. My parents were both born in Germany. And following the end of World War II, they were born in displaced persons camps, which were set up by international relief organizations. And ironically, when I see the images of refugees over the past four to five days, the story is hysterical historically different, but nearly identical from a human perspective. And and they came here in the early 1950s with with nothing. They were immigrants with nothing. And most of the diaspora community that came over from that time had very similar stories. There were professors and doctors and attorneys from Ukraine. And when they came here, they didn't know the language. And so they were no longer doctors and attorneys and engineers and professors, because first they had to get settled and they had to learn the language and they had to um, really integrate themselves into American society. And, and so I imagine, Raman and Sharon, those are your stories as well, to, to a large extent that there is a period of time that, that people have to simply transition from, from their home country to the United States and, and do the best they can.
3: Yeah. And it's always weird being the kids, you know, right, because right. you just want to be American. The other thing about that, though, is part of your identity. When you were growing up, Ukraine was a culture, but it was part of the Soviet Union and the seventies and the eighties in America, like it was us against them. It was this kind of cold war mentality. And so I guess less about that, but like, what was the shift for you as a Ukrainian American in 91?
0: Well, I will say something about that. And this is an experience that Alessio would not have had. We had to teach our teachers in elementary school, what Ukraine was. There were Mm -hmm. kids who called us commies and russians and because it was the 1980s i grew up in the in the 1980s the reagan era right the reagan Reagan era and it was it was the really the well the height and then the eventual fall of you know the the soviet union and and the soviet union was opening up at that time and glasnost and perestroika and all of those things were happening but but there was a really strong sense of nobody knew what ukraine was we were um the, the Ukrainian diaspora kids and, and all of my diaspora friends had the same experience, your commies or your Russians, to the point that even some teachers and educators would have to be corrected and would have to be really made to understand that the Soviet Union was comprised of 15 distinct republics, of which each was a separate indistinct distinct country and cultural identity and ethnicity. And that just wasn't being taught in American schools at all in the 1980s.
2: And... Where were you learning that from then? Was that at home with mom and dad? Was it in Ukrainian school?
0: In in a Saturday Ukrainian
2: school. Yeah. I feel
3: like all the ethnicities have a school on the weekends.
0: Everybody yeah. has a school. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly. Has a school. I was right about to say that. So like, I definitely went to Chinese school, but also it's kind of similar in that my mom grew up in Hong Kong and this is when they were still independent okay. from China, yeah. right? And so she would never say that she was from China because to her, Hong Kong was not It was a different, completely a different territory, like a different thing. And what I I found myself having to explain that to people sometimes, and it was just, it's always when you're a kid of an immigrant, you feel like the translator in so many ways, not just in terms of language, but in terms of perspective. And in your case, you're telling your teachers about where the boundaries lie and kind of um, right,
0: right. It and it's not a role sense, right? that any kid should have to play, right? I mean, you're a kid, you don't want to have to be teaching your teacher. But but, but we did, we all did. And we, we kind of laugh about it now, but it was really the reality. And then to, to your question, Roman, when Ukraine became independent, it was just a whole new world opened up to us because we had never traveled there and travel yeah. really, for the most part, was not allowed except through some official kind of channels, which of which we were not a part. And so suddenly we met Cousins and we met relatives and I, I got to meet people that my grandparents had talked about for really for our entire lives and it, it was really such a moving time, I think for many in the Ukrainian diaspora to really finally be able to to make concrete what had been so conceptual for us growing up. And there really was an iron curtain, right? I mean, you couldn't meet people face-to-face until after 1991 for the most part. And so my first trip there, as I mentioned, was in 1991. And then I went to teach English in 1993 and began to travel back and forth much more regularly.
3: And And something you were telling me earlier, again, for our younger listeners, we used to have these things called letters and long-distance phone calls. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right and letters to india it was like if you sent a fancy card the mailman would steal it right it but, was
0: identical right right, right. but these, but
3: there was censorship you talked about that in the letters too
0: there was censorship the letters that came i distinctly remember letters coming to my grandmother my grandfather had passed away probably by the time i remember this but i remember letters coming and they would say things that we all kind of knew weren't exactly true. And people wrote what they had to because everybody was reading the letters. And Mm -hmm. my grandparents were very careful with what they wrote. And and there were packages that they sent that were never delivered because the infrastructure was so corrupt and people were taking the items that they wanted. And so that was their only channel of communication.
3: Alessi, what about you? Like living there in the before and the after, before and after 91. And again, we're talking like pre-internet era, right? (laughs) Like what was your exposure to culture Beyond the walls of Ukraine.
1: Well, I think we wouldn't travel much, right? Mm-hmm. We kind of uh, uh, lived in in within the confines of the of the Soviet Union before Ukraine became independent, and and I think I grew up with a strong image of America as the enemy. And that when I was a child, we had a lot of bomb shelters built, which are ironically being used right now by Ukrainians to hide from mm-hmm. Russian bombs, but. Mm-hmm. Those bomb shelters were built to escape the atomic Mm -hmm. threat from, Mm -hmm. from the U.S., so yeah, there was definitely, I felt the pressure of the Iron Curtain. We um, had nothing from the U.S. It was, didn't come to Ukraine until after the independence. But then I remember the joy of discovering the world, being able to travel, being able to see what life outside of, of the Soviet Union looked like. And there were certain things that I realized that made Ukraine unique and, and near and dear, even though it had a lot of sort of post-Soviet elements. It still had a lot of uniqueness and beauty that I didn't find anywhere else. And when I came to the US and when I met people like Adriana, I was just amazed by how they preserved the culture. And oftentimes they were more knowledgeable about the Ukrainian culture than I was. So I think to me, that's amazing how the Ukrainian community can Come together. There's this, you know, incredible self-reliance, but also reliance on people like you, and relying on your community to 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 carry you through the good times, but also through the bad times. And so, yes, the Ukrainian diaspora continues to amaze me. Just how strong and connected we are.
3: Why did you choose? But, I know you got into college in the U.S., yeah. but what was the decision to, to leave to go so far away from home at that moment?
1: Yeah, I wanted to study psychology and psychology was not really a discipline in the Soviet times. I think it was just a mixture of like Lenin Marxist ideal ideology. So I wanted to study psychology and and the U.S. was the right place to do it. So I went to undergraduate in the U.S. and then I got my doctoral degree Mm -hmm, in the U.S. mm -hmm. And so from the perspective of education, it made sense. And then I met my husband here, so I had a strong reason to stay.
3: Who's not American as well, though. He met a dashing <laughs> Frenchman. So.
1: A Frenchman who is um, who has become a very patriotic Ukrainian as well. <laughs> I call him the most uh, the most pro-Ukrainian Frenchman. Uh,
3: so another question just to ask is, as kids, I would imagine, Alessa, you had to do this in college and Adriana as a, as a kid. Explaining the differences between not just the countries in the geography lesson, but the Ukraine versus Europe versus Russia versus Baltic culture, I'm I will be very honest. Like I don't know as much about the differences. I know there are subtleties, right? Based on I don't know, man. I don't. I, let, let's be honest. A lot of us don't know the difference between a lot of these things. It all just kind of mushes together in the big continent of Asia that isn't my Asia, but is your Asia, right? Yeah. Uh, Can you guys help us unpack that? What are the differences between Ukrainian culture and Russian culture and Baltic culture and Ukrainian culture? What are the similarities and the differences? Because you guys are European as well. It's it's such an interesting melting pot.
0: Well, I think geography matters as it always does. The majority of the Russian landmass finds itself in Asia, and the Ukrainian landmass and borders are on the European continent. So a portion of Russia is in Europe, a very large portion of it is in Asia, and The the history is different, right? I mean, the Ukrainians had a very strong national movement in the 19th century when the whole idea of a nation state was first developing. The Russians did not have that. The Russians were colonizers, the Ukrainians were not, I think many are you know, familiar in both of you as well with the concept of colonialism. And that's a really important concept for your listeners to understand that Ukraine was colonized by Russia through the centuries. Ukraine was also part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Ukraine participated in many of really the pivotal moments in European history, so including the Reformation, including the Enlightenment, including, as I mentioned before, the the whole birth of the idea of a nation state. Russia did not participate in these movements at all. And Ukraine also has a very long-standing and deeply rooted tradition of democracy, really dating back to the 1700s. The first constitution in Europe was actually written by a Ukrainian who was in exiled, Kazakh Hetman named Philip Orlik. Before Montesquieu's book was written, he wrote what is considered by historians to be the first constitution. And so that really deeply rooted sense of democracy, we see it playing out over and over again in Ukraine. The Ukrainians are peace-loving. They are lovers of having sovereignty and, and having decisions made democratically. Russia does not share that tradition. And if we look at Russia today, we see that Really, there is no precedent. I mean, protesters are trying very hard now to speak out against the war, and that is immediately being suppressed as it always has been throughout Russian history. Right. And, and so that's a really key difference. I think it's really important for people to understand the historical roots of what is happening today from that perspective.
3: Where did that independent street come from? Because like Americans, we have this like, I don't know how to describe it, but like this like, no, we're going to do our own thing. No one tells us what to do, for better or worse, right? Indians have that too, to be very clear, for better or for worse. But where did that sovereign urge come from? Like, is what is it in the culture that has that?
0: Well, I, I don't know, Alessia, if you'd like to say something. <laughs> I, I think that it, it's... Ukraine is surrounded by, has been historically surrounded by empires, right? So Mm -hmm. by the Russian empire Mm -hmm. to the north and east, by different points in history, by the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarians, the Mm -hmm. Polish-Lithuanians. And so different parts of the country have been subsumed by different empires, and yet they're... Maybe despite of that, or maybe because of it. it's really hard to say, right? It's a national trait of Ukraine, and we see its manifestation today that Ukraine is not a comfortable neighbor for a country like Russia, because it presents a threat to a country that does not have the same tradition.
1: In my mind, one of the confusing features for many Americans is that a lot of Ukrainians do speak Russian. But that doesn't mean that they identify themselves as Russian. And I think mm-hmm. that was, in my mind, that's the biggest miscalculation of Putin. The assumption was, if you speak Russian, we will come to liberate you. And, mm-hmm. and that is not the case. I made a decision. I think I was in my early 20s. I you know, spoke Russian fluently. And um, I made a decision. To stop speak Russian because it was very important for me to not be confused with Russians. And so I spoke Ukrainian only to my friends from Ukraine and I spoke English to russians and for really? me it came almost like a litmus test if they thought of it as weird or i think a lot of them thought of it as weird but they made peace with it and and it was important to me it was important sort of act of rebellion to say i'm from ukraine and i don't speak russian now i sort of <laughs> feel that that was a wise decision but i think language is also very important aspect that differentiates two cultures. Ukrainian and Russian are not the same language. They are actually, Ukrainian is much closer to Polish or Slovak than it is to Russian. And fun fact about Ukrainian is that it's one of the most melodious languages in the world. It's the language made for operas. So they do phonetically sound very, very different.
3: How would you describe, I don't know, uh, to, I don't know, a French guy you're dating, what, what Ukrainian culture is like, like, what are some of those just kind of like stereotypical Yuki things that you observe?
1: (laughs) I think it's a very food oriented culture. (laughs) Having known you for a while, I believe that.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Food, food is actually always involved in everything we do. Yeah.
0: Well, I would say food, family and good company, right? They all go together. And so mm-hmm. it is, I would say, one of the really defining characteristics of Ukrainians is hospitality to anybody who comes through the door. And and that was the case with the diaspora Ukrainians as well. And, and when I went to Ukraine and, and saw it there, it was immediately a really familiar kind of tie to the country because mm-hmm. it, it was sort of like being in my aunt's house or in my grandmother's house here it was the same kind of mindset. And and culturally, it's an interesting question. Ukraine's religious trajectory developed very differently from Russia's. Ukraine has a very strong Ukrainian Greek Catholic population in mm. the West of the country, and, mm. and now an independent Orthodox church, as well as the Russian Orthodox Church. And I think along with the religion, many of the customs that developed are also, are, are different. Mm-hmm, Some are mm-hmm. similar, but many are different. And I think that there have been cases of Russians appropriating some of these customs and calling them their own, and and that happens regularly, unfortunately.
1: Mm -hmm. I would say another very important part of our culture is singing and songs. I think every single family gathering finishes with singing. And all of us grew up with the songs. We know the lyrics, we know the tunes. And I think it's something that unites Ukrainians from all over the world. We know the same songs. Those songs have been part of our childhoods. And yeah, I think you will never find a Ukrainian gathering without people coming <laughs> together and singing a couple of songs. And Ukrainian songs are very, very, very beautiful. And Carol of the Bells, the very famous Christmas mm-hmm. songs is a Ukrainian song. So just one example of, of the Ukrainian music.
3: One thing I, I have to let you know, I think I've told you this probably, this was, I know you had kids, but my wife and I did not have kids. And you invited us over to your apartment when your parents were visiting. And all of the mannerisms of your mother that night, she'd cooked a feast. And the as we're going out the door, like loading us up with food, like I just got a very Indian auntie vibe. And like, that's how I knew we were like simpatico. Like we were the same people.
1: (laughs) Yes. My, my mom loves to feed people and, and make sure that they live with food. They leave with food when, you know, they go out of the door.
3: So it's something like, again, it's as Americans, we saw the headlines when shit happened and then we forgot and went back to stuff. This crisis, a lot of people are saying, has been going on since 2008, when Russia annexed Georgia, and then later on in 2014, with the invasion of Ukraine, the first invasion right, of Crimea. What was that like for you guys? Because again, for us, you, you read the news, you send a text to your Ukrainian friend, and then you, you have shit to do, you go back. But for you, I mean, Alessia, your family was there. Adriana, by this point, you have reestablished connections. What was that? I mean, what was 08 in 2014? What, what was that period like for you guys? not just what were your experience, but like watching us not pay attention to it?
1: Yeah, I think to be honest with you, it's hard for me to, I'm so overwhelmed with emotions right now. It's even hard for me to imagine what it felt like in, in 2014. Right. I, th- I think we took it lightly. I mean, not lightly, but meaning that we didn't anticipate how far that would go. It's almost like, well, this will stop. The incursion, right? They will stop at Crimea. They never did. They would stop with Donbass. They never did. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we anticipated that it would come to be. We didn't, wouldn't, we refuse to believe that somebody would do such a thing as invade a neighboring country. But for me, I mean it's as you said, Ramon, it's been seven days, and I feel like my life will always be divided into the before and after. And it's one of those flashbulb memories that I will carry with me until the day I die. I remember when the war was declared, when the bombs were started to mm-hmm. fall on Cave. It was a beautiful day in New York. It was warm. I took my kids to the city. We went to Carnegie Hall to listen to Juilliard orchestra perform. And when we came out, I read the news, and I found out that Ukraine was at war. And that was just just a devastating feeling. And my mom is out of the country, but my family is there. And I cannot even imagine what they're going through, knowing that, the bombs are falling on the place where you live, that you have to hide in the shelter, that you have to fear for your life, that the war is now being waged against civilians in the most indiscriminate manner. Mm-hmm that is horrifying. And I think it was Adriana who posted um, something on Facebook about the life of Ukrainian Americans. And I think a lot of us share the same sentiment. I think we feel grief, we feel anger, we feel sadness, we feel mobilized to help, right? We feel sort of energized, but we feel that our life is not the same as it was before. Like I feel like going out to me and having a glass of wine is it just feels morally wrong. So I find myself working and then watching TV nonstop and then finding the ways to help connecting with my relatives. And until the war is over, I don't think I will feel like the true sense of joy.
2: Mm. And how about you, Adriana? Are you are you keeping in touch with anybody there? And, and what are you hearing?
0: Oh, yes, I have quite a few friends, cousins, some friends with whom I had worked when I was teaching English who are in the south of the country, actually very close to the city that I believe tonight was announced had been taken over by Russian troops and so on. And so they are safe as of this morning, but I haven't spoken with them throughout the day or throughout the evening. Roman, you asked about two thousand and eight and two thousand fourteen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I agree with what Olasia said. I don't think that any of us really thought that things would progress beyond that. And and that was bad enough, right? Annexing, illegally annexing mm-hmm. the Crimean mm-hmm. Peninsula was, was pretty bad, I mean, from any perspective. But it happened, Ukrainians had rallies and Ukrainians held signs in front of the United Nations and in front of the Russian consulate in New York and in front of the Russian embassy in Washington and in front of the White House. And in a very short amount of time, those rallies kind of ended. and And it's clear now that in retrospect, those were trials, right? I mean, that was a tyrant trying to see how far he could go and trying to see what the resistance would be and trying to see what the pushback would be, and there wasn't any. There, there was virtually none from any country. And as far as how I've been feeling, my my ties clearly are not as uh, of the same strength or variety as last is because. I have less family than others do who have been in the United States for a shorter amount of time than i have but but nonetheless it's I think we see it from the standpoint of being born in the United States, raised in the United States, but also with a very close tie to a country and when we look at what's happening today it it's unjust from every perspective and mm-hmm. to to look at it from the standpoint of an American democracy that has really upheld these values throughout its history. And, and just to see the United States is not doing all that it can to stop this from happening is is really frustrating. This really makes us feel very helpless. We can call the White House and we can write to our representatives and we've been doing all of that. And, it's, and then watching the news and seeing that it's continuing is is just really heartbreaking.
2: Have you talked to your kids about it? And do they have questions about it?
1: I've been watching the news coverage with, with my kids. and so that-
3: how, And how old are they?
1: My boys are 10 and 12. And yeah, it was a conscious decision. I think it's important for them to know the truth and to know the truth in the way that it unfolds in Ukraine. So I let them watch bombs blowing up. They've been to these places. And they've been to those places and for them, it's an important lesson that I want them to to learn that you need to stand up for the truth. You need to fight the evil. You need to gather the courage. And I think what the thing that I want them to learn is finding the courage in the face of fear. And one of the videos that we've watched so many times with them is the Ukrainians facing the tanks. These completely, you know, people who have no weapons, right? There is, they, they have no way to defend themselves. And you see these, you know, humongous tanks, and yet people find the courage to stand in front of the tank and to use themselves as a human shield. And to me, that's something I want them to, to think about and uh, the ideal of courage that I want them to, to remember from all of this horror. But they told me that they spoke about Ukraine at school and they were so proud to tell that they were half Ukrainian and, and that they will do everything in their power to help Ukraine. And so, yes, I feel like they need to know and I'm trying to be as truthful with them as I can.
2: Have they asked hard questions? Like my nine-year-old, when we had woken up to the news, my husband immediately was like, we've got to tell the kids because they're probably going to hear about it at school. And and we would rather be the ones to share the news with them. And my nine-year-old just kept asking why, why, like, why would this happen? What did Ukraine do to Russia? Why would Russia do this? And we didn't have any good answers for him, right? Because Personally, I don't think there's a real, like, there's no rational reason for that. So how do you, have your kids asked you questions like that? And how yeah. do you answer that question?
1: They uh, they did. And I think luckily for me, they, they studied Hitler and that period in in history. And for me, that's an easy analogy. It's the same type of ideology. It's the mm. ideology of supremacy. It's the ideology that's based on Misrepresentation of of reality, right? And so I think they've sort of latched on to to this analogy. And I think that's now what the the rest of the world is is realizing that the story is repeating itself, and that what Russians are doing in Ukraine is very similar to what Nazis did in Russia and in, in the Soviet Union in the in the 1940s. So yeah, I think using metaphors or using comparisons helps to explain this. This situation has worked for me.
3: Adriana, in the, the broader Yuki community, it's, you're part of the diaspora as well. Like, what, what has, what has the community impact been like? And how, how are, how, how are people feeling now?
0: At at this point, I don't differentiate between the time that Olesa came here and the time Mm -hmm. that my family came here. Mm -hmm. We are all experiencing such similar feelings and emotions Mm -hmm. and, and fears. I think the, the diaspora community with which I grew up was very accustomed to really to rallying and to banding together mm-hmm. and to sending help to Ukraine. After the nuclear accident at Chernobyl happened, mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. a nonprofit created by the Ukrainian diaspora. then, and they sent this organization sent medicine and supplies and mm-hmm. clothing. and and so, This feels sort of similar to that. People are thinking of what can we do and how can we help on the ground? What are some ways that we can get some concrete assistance over there as soon as possible? Because it's quickly quickly becoming a humanitarian catastrophe and in many parts of the country. And and so I think there's this kind of tradition of of the community really almost knowing what to do automatically. And really for 30 years we haven't had to do it because there hasn't been reason. So kind of r- reminds me of the days of growing up. As far as our son, we have a 10-year-old and we took him to Washington DC to the White House this past Sunday where there were thousands and thousands of Ukrainians gathered. And he's asked the same questions as as all of your kids, I'm sure. Why does this happen? And, and I think he said after the rally that seeing all these people, he said, Oh, these are like the good guys, right? I mean, he plays yeah. his video game and there's yeah. good guys and and then there's not so good guys. And we we want to make sure that he understands that these are human lives. He's this is not a video game. This is not, but but the concept of there being kind of this inherent good and evil, I think is how we've really tried to explain it to him. And he too has sort of read about Nazis in various books. And, and so we've used the same analogy because it, it really, unfortunately, is, is quite similar.
3: How should, I mean, I, I kind of have to ask this, like, how should Americans be thinking about this? What do you want people that don't have a Ukrainian connection, a Ukrainian friend? Like, what are the things we should be doing as individuals? What can we do beyond reading the news, staying informed? posting to social media like like
1: th-
3: these things i think there's like this appetite where we want to do more but we don't know what to do
1: yeah and i think Ramon sometimes people like adriana and myself we don't know what to do either i think it's a very human feeling to to feel that you're helpless right and there is just so little that you can do but i think what i would say is it's important not to be on the sidelines you know you have to act and and we have to act now because ukraine is being annihilated it is sort of a genocide from my perspective at this moment so if you are a business owner i would say cut your ties with russia immediately and you would be joining the ranks of apple and bp and nike and all the other companies who have done this recently because that economic pressure will do its job, not immediately, but it will put the pressure that Russia needs. As an individual, donate money, participate in local events, write to your congressman, demand more help, do, but do something, right? I think thoughts and prayers are important, but in addition to that, you have to be followed by by action. And in the age of, of social media, you can Google information about Ukraine. You can find organizations that help Ukrainians. You can now donate directly to Ukrainian army. So there are multiple ways that folks can help.
3: Yeah, we'll put a lot of these links in the show notes. There's there's readily available things to be done that have direct impact and direct action.
1: Right, and I,
0: I read something that somebody wrote earlier today, and it really resonated. When you watch war documentaries or documentaries about tyrants like Stalin or Hitler or throughout the world, there's always sort of a moment when you're watching the documentary that you say, why didn't anybody do anything to stop this person? How could the rest of this documentary have continued? Where were the people? Where were the doers and the people who cared? And we are at that moment. We're at the moment that when historians look back, when documentaries are made about this time period, this is the point at which I truly believe We're on a precipice and people will say, why wasn't more done? And so we all have to be doing, as Alessia said, what we can do individually on a small scale and, and everybody can be doing something. Everybody can be doing something. And this is about Ukraine right now, but it may not stay about Ukraine. Putin is somebody who's been, he's shown himself to be emboldened by weakness and lack of action. And there could be a very large-scale effect of all of this to to other countries, to other regions. He's threatening the United States with nuclear war, which is posturing, but it's still a very conceivable and real threat. And so not doing anything is not an option.
3: Yeah. It's this weird thing of we live in this weird populist, toxic nationalist era, Brazil, India, China, uh, Philippines. Uh, These people are not Putin's not the only one he's the only one acting right now and my fear is people are watching him and people are watching what the rest of the world is going to do because it sets a precedent of what the rest of us will or will not do
2: right I think on the I think on the flip side Zelensky has emerged as being such a symbol of heroism and patriotism and bravery and strength I mean I was watching some footage from the EU, Speech that he had made yesterday, where the translator was choking up in tears as they were interpreting what he was saying, and he's really, in some ways, I bet it's kind of interesting that he he kind of came out of nowhere, right? Like he was he wasn't a politician in any way, and it's like if Colbert um, ran for office, <laughs> right? Right, like a total like oh, like what's this guy doing here? And he's such a great symbol, and I think he embodies as Alicia, as you were talking about the values that you were teaching your son about those like those exact moments that like his essence is there right and so i think that's a shining light in all of this i think that is his words and his energy i think is really what i find to be such a that that defines to me what ukraine means today
1: yeah, absolutely, Sharon. And I think it's it's his words, his energy and his actions, right? Yeah. He never left.
2: Mm-hmm. And right.
1: he had plenty of opportunities to live and he could be abroad or he could be in the West of Ukraine and he chose to stay in Kiev and to be with his people. And I think that... That is such a huge boost to the morale. And you mentioned the speech to the European Parliament. I think it's one of those defining moments, right? in in the Ukrainian history. And yeah, I was choking up as well, similar to that translator. Yeah. And I personally didn't vote for him. I thought he was, (laughs) I didn't agree with any of his political views, but like many Ukrainians now, I am fully behind him. And I absolutely agree with you. His leadership is so inspiring.
3: What's a recollection from the last time you were home?
1: Oh, my goodness. For me, this is, I think what, you know, I was thinking about this. I think what makes it most painful is that my visit to cave was just a couple of months ago. I was there in August, and I came home after a long period of time, and I was just amazed by the beauty of cave, and I think what makes it so painful is just seeing the streets of Kyiv being so brutally attacked. And I love the golden domes of Ukrainian churches and just the thought of having them being destroyed by the Russian artillery breaks my heart. So I, I almost have a visceral feeling of being there, walking the streets, of going to restaurants, going to, to music concerts. And Ukraine is... You know, a thriving country with so much rich culture. And so I viscerally feel like I was there just a day ago. And so mm. it feels, it feels just, I feel physical pain when I watch the news.
2: How about you, Adriana? What's your memory of last being there?
0: So oh, I will. <laughs> Before saying that, I will say that we have such a huge regret that we have not yet taken our son to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And my brother-in-law lives there. He's American, but he moved there about 15 or 16 years ago. And he and his wife and their four children live there. And our son is close with the kids. And every summer we've been saying, oh, we'll take a trip and we'll go and we'll visit Mm -hmm. your cousins Mm -hmm. and they'll show you around. And we didn't do that. And I just have this such a horrible regret about it because- we don't know what the country will look like the next time we have an opportunity mm-hmm. to go. And as Alessia said, there's such beauty, such physical beauty, the architecture and the, the nightlife and and the stuff for kids to do and the museums and the concerts. And and sadly, it just looks like some of that or much of it could be destroyed and won't be rebuilt anytime in the near future. So my recollections of being there, I, have, I haven't been to Ukraine for quite some time, but seeing family and just spending time really kind of not even appreciating the fact that the country had such a newfound freedom and independence and almost taking it for granted. And mm-hmm. and just 30 years for, for Ukraine is a long time of independence because it has had declarations of independence. For example, in 1918, it declared independence. Mm-hmm. It was very very quickly suppressed. And at various points in history, had some short-lived periods of independence, but 30 years is, is really the longest stretch for Ukraine as, as it is today. And, and so just that feeling of making the, the false assumption that there is no more threat and that, that the country can peacefully survive for the foreseeable future. And that turned out not to be the
3: case. So we spent a lot of time and I just appreciate you guys opening up your memories. And I know this is kind of a hard time. And I think it's important for people to hear the, the human side of, of your culture, right? What is at risk? Because it's all of us, this this tapestry we live in. It's kind of weird to pivot to fun questions, but I, I kind of have to, because there, there's hope and humor. But what what is something about Ukrainian people that might surprise folks?
1: Um, I will say, and I sort of uh, define myself as a feminist, I believe in women's rights and Ukrainian culture is actually very much... A feminist culture so a woman was the head of the household <laughs> a woman had considerable power and so many plays and stories and folk songs talk about women was a great deal of respect and so i feel like for many societies kind of finding that respect for the role of women came much later but in ukraine it was sort of that almost the feature of the culture of the very start how about you adriana
0: So here's a fun fact. I will pick up on what Olesa just said. In the 11th century, there was a Ukrainian woman who married a French king, and so she became the French queen, and she was the daughter of Prince Yaroslav the Wise, and she became Queen Anna of France and was married to King Henry I. She was fluent and literate and could read in at least three languages, from what historians know of her. She made many political decisions. Her her father eventually became known as the father-in-law of Europe because so many of Europe's royals were descended from <laughs> directly from her line. And so this is a thousand more than a thousand years ago at this point. And and so she was sort of the original Ukrainian feminist who was literate and educated at a time that most people weren't, and, and particularly women were. Not. At the time, but she sort of has become a symbol for for Ukrainians of, of female empowerment and female strength. And
3: wow, what's a book, film, or TV show that can help people better understand you, the Ukrainian culture?
1: I want to say I saw this book in uh, a neighborhood uh, bookstore so I think you can buy it you know pretty much anywhere in the United States and it's called The Gates of Europe. Mm. It's a history book and it's written by Sergei Ploche. So just remember the title probably <laughs> hard to remember the 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 name but the book uh, goes back as far as the 5th century BC to talk about all the things that happened in Ukraine, and I think for folks trying to understand, you know, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, this will provide a full perspective, right? And and it can help you understand sort of, you know, where Ukraine came from and how the identity of Ukraine was formed. So that's that's one book I would recommend. I, any- I, I would agree
0: with that. I think that's a great kind of starter book for anybody looking to learn more. There's also a historian at Yale University named Timothy Snyder, who's written very extensively on Ukraine, and, and any one of his books would be interesting for people to read. He's, he's, I mean, he, he writes primarily about 20th century history, but also about other periods of history in Ukraine.
1: And I think if you want to understand the spirit of Ukraine, watch Winter on Fire, On Netflix. It's a documentary and it shows the the revolution driven by people, pro European revolutions. So I think that's also at the origins of today's conflict. So Winter on Fire. And then the other movie, it just came out. It was Ukraine's entry into the Sundance Festival. It's called Klondike. And it's a feature about a couple who lives in the Donbass region of Ukraine and part of the Malaysian Airlines. Mm, yeah. that was gone mm-hmm. down. I personally haven't uh, seen it, but I've heard so many great reviews of Klondike. I think you can stream it online and yeah, maybe we can watch it all together.
2: Yeah. And we'll definitely put links in our show notes too, so people can enjoy it. What is your favorite Yuki mom dish? <laughs>
0: my mom. So she has learned to make just about everything that my grandmother ever made and more. Probably my favorite dish, if I had to pick one, is a stuffed cabbage dish called holoptsi, which is cabbage. You can stuff it with rice and mushrooms for vegetarians mm. or rice and meat for, for meat eaters. And it's kind of a hearty soul food for Ukrainians. Delicious. and, yes. But really, all, all Ukrainian food is is great. And as Alessa mentioned, it's it's really sort of a centerpiece of our culture in so many ways. And there have been many contemporary Ukrainian chefs that have sort of been making a name for themselves
2: yeah how about you alessia
1: Well, I love holopsy as well, but I would say that it's borscht. Borscht (laughs) is a beet soup. And I think Ukrainians pride themselves in, you know, having the family recipe of borscht. And my grandmother's recipe was very different from my mom's recipe. So I think every generation sort of brings their own element. And you typically eat borscht with a dollop of sour cream. And it's... Mm -hmm divine.
2: I love borscht. And so both of you are moms now. Do you cook yuki food for your kids? And what would your kids say would be your signature yuki dish that you make for them?
1: So
0: I'm, I'm more a baker than a cook. So I have started around Christmas time. I bake a Ukrainian honey cake, the my son mm. has made with mm. me for ever since he was old enough to stir things in a bowl. So that's one of our Christmas traditions that we always do that together. And I, I too have learned, my parents don't live nearby, so I've had to learn how to cook any <laughs> green foods that we want to eat. But Annika, okay, I started to make, those are pierogies, and for the, for the first time this year, I made them I think two or three times this winter. It's kind of meditative and therapeutic, so. it's
2: great.
1: Yeah, I think Vareniki is also my boys' favorite food there in their carb stage. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the more carbs, the better, and Vareniki are definitely their top, 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 uh, top food for them.
3: Uh, Alyssa, I have to give you credit. Early on in our friendship, when we were young, and you introduced me to one of my favorite restaurants in the city, and that's Vaselka. So, I mean... And the amount I of like
2: Veselka. the I amount of cred Veselka. I would
3: get for taking visitors who would like come on a business trip, like, oh, we're going to this place. Like, how do you like, yeah, Veselka is the shit? So
1: Veselka is the best. But in since you mentioned links, I we have a list of 10 places in New York City that you can support Ukrainian places. So we'll, excellent. We'll, we'll put those enrich in. that range. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so who's a Ukrainian person that you would want to talk to on a podcast?
1: I would suggest let's bring Zelensky. <laughs> he's, kind of, he's doing a
3: lot of zooms right now, but yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, you might you might have to wait in line for, for a little bit, but I would say Zelensky and uh, especially after th- he wins the war and the Nobel Peace Prize, I think that he would be a good good candidate.
0: Or his wife. We can bring his wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there are a lot of a lot of reformers in parliament who are a lot of women that I know who have been really working very hard over the years to to continue building Ukraine's democracy and, and working on legal reform and anti-corruption initiatives. And there are a list of them that I think would be just fantastic to have on a podcast. There's they're sort of this group of, of women who refuse to give up there and they're all still in Kyiv. They have not left the city. They're working and they're trying their best right now. So
2: What does being a Ukrainian modern minority mean to you?
0: Well, I think um, given the events of the past week, it's, to me personally, I have such a sense of pride in how the Ukrainian people are handling this completely unprovoked invasion. It means looking back to my own family history and reminding myself of the, the price of freedom, the price that multiple generations in many countries, not just in Ukraine, but from my own personal perspective, that my family had to pay to survive, and my my grandparents never saw their parents again, because when they left Ukraine, they could not go back, or they would have been killed, and so they left as late teenagers, early 20s, and never saw their parents again, and I, in the past week, especially, I've been thinking about what kind of legacy that leaves and when it it puts into perspective these things that we think are so important and and they're really not. And and just to kind of be reminded of how fragile peace is and how fragile freedom is and how fragile democracy is and what the cost of maintaining it and preserving it really are.
3: Alessia, what does being a Ukrainian modern minority mean for you?
1: I think what it means to me is strength and resilience and i hope that through how i show up to people that i can you know demonstrate these qualities as well as my nation at the moment. So strength, resilience, and then optimism. I feel like Ukrainians are eternal optimists. And you see this in the sense of humor. And I think all of us have seen the response to the Russian battleship, right? That has Mm -hmm. now become sort of the slogan of of freedom. So I think it's never losing faith that you have... You, you will overcome, right? That you will come all the difficulties and the strength, and the God is on your side.
3: Mm. That's beautiful.
1: And Raman and Sharon, if you don't mind, since we spoke about Zelensky, I just want to read his quote. Uh, it's from his recent uh, interview, and I, I find it personally very inspiring. He said, Life will win over death, and light will win over darkness
3: glory to ukraine
2: glory to ukraine glory to ukraine thank um, you both for spending this time with us today it was it's it's a tough it's a difficult topic but i think it's one that that we're all we're, we're all hoping for the best and and we we offer so much support and we really want our listeners to be able to, to support in their ways too. So we really appreciate you sharing your stories and sharing your family backgrounds and, and spending time with us today.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having, having us. Yes. Thank
2: you. And that's our show.
3: Like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
2: Now, more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
3: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi mom at modmypod.com.
2: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you.
3: That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
2: We'll talk to you soon.